Sirius XM Sports Podcasts presents Mad Dog's Daily Bite with Christopher Russo. And good afternoon, everybody. Rob, nice to talk. Christopher Russo, how are you today? Okay? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Appreciate the time. You got it. Great to have you with us here. That is weird, huh? We've had uh, three huge documentaries on the centers. Now you're the third in the last seven, uh, six, seven months. Why the fascination all of a sudden with Russell Wilton Walton? Give me your thoughts on that. Go ahead. That's a great question. Specifically for Wilt, I'd say, in my opinion, I think this is long overdue. Uh, but with respect to the estate and their level of trust and comfort to let filmmakers tell the story justly, I think it took a while before they found the right party, um, i.e. us, uh, to get to a place to be comfortable and trusting to, to let us in. You know, Kevin Garnett was a huge part of that. He's a ginormous Will Chamberlain fan, and he was the of getting this project developed and sold and Showtime uh, on board to make it happen. Um, I imagine with Russell, you know, it was just everyone's awareness with him approaching the end of his life with, you know, health challenges and wanting to honor the legacy. Walton, I'm not sure, honestly. I haven't got a chance to, I don't know if this is bad, to watch either um, because I was trying to not be influenced in the process of making the Good Will Chamberlain doc. So, Good point. You know, I need to yeah. back and see them. Yeah. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I can see you want to stay away from it. You're working on your own center. Why do you want to worry about the other two guys? I, I, yeah, I, exactly. I, I, that's very fair. All right, how about uh, permission from the Chamberlain estate? Well, you need permission for what reason? For a video? I mean, Billy Cunningham doesn't need p- permission to talk. I mean, you know, so, right. so uh, but why did you, I, I know you need to get him on camera, the sisters, but why do you need yeah. permission to do a documentary from the family? Let me hear. Yeah, well, it's, it's two things. So, um, you know, Wilkes no longer with us and his sister, Barbara Lewis, controls the estate. And we wanted to have the family's per- permission. We wanted to have the family's voice, you know, a part of it. And we also wanted to have the archive that Barbara, you know, has. Her home is essentially a shrine that's dedicated to Wilt. She has four or five bedrooms, and each one is literally dedicated to a different part of his life. There's a Harlem Globetrotters room. There's a Kansas Jayhawks room. There's a Sixers room. There's a a Lakers room. It's quite fascinating. Anyway, she's been chronicling his life pretty much since adolescence in Philly when he started playing basketball. Um, really at Haddington Red Park and then Overbrook. And so to make this authentic, to make it genuine, to make it rich, to make it what we aim to do, which is to make the definitive, all-comprehensive Wilt Chamberlain dot. Like once this is made, you don't need to make another one because we've addressed everything. We really needed that archive and the family support. So that's why it was imperative. Additionally, and you alluded to this in the, uh, the setup piece, we have this AI technology that we use to recreate uh, Wilt's voice. And we hired a voice actor who basically sounds as close as possible to Wilt Chamberlain as we could get. And then we had him read various quotes and lines from Wilt's books and different interviews that he did that we put in the film. And his voice was used to be converted with the AI technology to sound like Wilt's, which is what you hear in the film. So just given the nature of AI and the sensitivity of it, the challenges that the filmmakers had with the Anthony Bourdain project, for example, we just wanted to make sure that morally, 
and ethically everything yep. had integrity and respect and was on, you know, the up and up with the family. That's fair. Good answer. Uh, I had never seen it before. I uh, I know Kearns because he lives up here. Or he, at least I did. I'm not, I don't know where he is, but he lives up in Darien, Connecticut, where I am. So I'm familiar with him. Um, yeah. Why? Uh, I've never seen it before. Where'd you get the video of that Kansas-North Carolina championship game in 1957? Where'd you get that? Let's say a magician never reveals his tricks. But Yeah, uh, good line, yeah. Rob. Good line. Yes. <laughs> but no, man, we searched high and low. We went to every local TV network at the time that had the broadcast. We reached out to other filmmakers who were doing projects, you know, uh, in a similar fashion. A lot of beg, borrow, and, and, and prayer, you know. Uh, it wasn't like one piece of footage came from one place. It was uh, an aggregate of several, you know, slices from different entities to stitch that game together. So it took a lot of time, a lot of work, a lot of effort, and, and happy that you're responding to it. It is something that's never really been done in that way in a documentary to see that footage of, like, living in the game which is why we chose to start with it, because it really gives you uh, a feeling of an organic experience of being in real time with what was happening. That was super important for us. Uh, you did start with it in that first episode. And, folks, the reason why that game is important, because in a lot of ways, although it wasn't Will's fault, that game started the idea that Will couldn't win the big one. And I'll let Rob deal with that, because they lost in triple overtime. It wasn't Will's fault. He scored 26 points. He actually made his free throws in the game. It was 54-53. <laughs> uh, and that game, I know, I know that game Will took to his grave. He only played the one year. Then he went to the Globetrotters. May have played two, but I, that was the year that I got to a championship game. And that game, Rob, in a lot of ways, started the idea that Wilt was always the big guy that we wanted to root against, which is unfortunate because he's such a nice guy. And it kind of began with North Carolina beating them by a point with Frank McGuire. How about that? Let me hear. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, you, you nailed it, man. Uh, and when you get through episode three, we'll bring that whole thing full circle uh, for you and, and keep the Kleenex close because it gets very emotional. When he finally comes back to Kansas. Yeah, that's a famous, crazy. that's a famous, you got video of that. It's a famous day when he finally went back to the field house. So you have that in episode three. Is that, is that the correct? Yeah, 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 exactly. With his jersey retirement. But to your point, the narrative of Wilt throughout his professional career, you know, particularly because of the run that Russell and the Celtics had with their great team and all those Hall of Famers, was, yeah, he couldn't win the big one. And it haunted him. And it really, really, really caused, you know, deep depression um, because he felt he was great and he felt like he could carry the weight. He felt like he tried to do everything he could. But as one of the, you know, uh, interviewees in our project says, you know, one against five, you're going to lose every time, no matter how good you are. And that was Will's challenge. He just couldn't do it by himself. You know, once he finally got a team and have supporting cast and good coaching. He actually did win, and he did beat Russell. But to understand the genesis of where that all starts in Kansas and how he carried that through his career and how it was so difficult for him to even return to Kansas because he felt like he let the entire you know, town down with that loss, it's very dramatic. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an important part of his life to understand who he is as a person and how deeply sensitive he was and how it really negates the narrative that he was this individual, statistic-driven guy who just was about self and wanted to score. No, he wanted to win, and he wanted to be a champion, but it's a team game. 
you know, and, he, and he's limited, even as great as he was. Rob Ford, he did the one of the directors of the Wilt documentary on Showtime. It's three parts. It's called Goliath. I have not seen part three yet. I have seen first two parts. Great foot, great video, great footage. Uh, go with a couple little. Uh, I'll, let me, I'll handle the basketball first with Rob, and then we'll get to some other things because you know we yeah. all know the twenty thousand women and all that stuff. But let's get to the basketball first. I think what hurts Wilt, Rob, and you you addressed it once I haven't seen the other two that you uh, where, where you may have done it in episode three is there are too many moments in Wilt's career where you, you wonder where his head's at taking himself yeah. out of game seven against this against in Russell's last game running around the arena at the garden in game seven against the Knicks is Willis playing tonight what is he worrying about Willis for and the one that right. I did see that you addressed was Bob Ryan discussed it Wilt not taking any shots uh, at the end of Game 7 or in the second half of Game 7 when they were defending that first championship and Philadelphia came back or Boston came back and beat them when they were down 3-1. I once did an affair with John Havlicek, and he said the reason why Wilt didn't want to do that, he was afraid he was going to foul out, and he had never fouled out in an NBA game. Now, that's the last thing Wilt should be thinking about. Game 7 of a conference final, when it's a close game against Russell, well, I'm going to foul out, I better not shoot. And there are too many of those games in Wilt's career that make you scratch your head. You addressed the one of them. I'm sure you addressed the other two. But I want you to explain to the audience if you could figure out why at certain points Wilt kind of shied away from big, big moments. Let me hear your thoughts on that. Go ahead. Yeah, that, that is definitely the narrative. And, you know, I think there's a case and argument to be made for that. And we don't necessarily look to completely negate that. We just try and present all the facts to each particular scenario um, so, for example, as you mentioned, the championship game against Russell, um, you know, Russell's last game when Will gets hurt and doesn't come back in, um, we do address that in episode three. And, you know, it's our understanding from doing the interviews and the research that Will actually wanted to go back into that game, though he was hurt. But what was happening was throughout that season, he and uh, Coach Van Bredekoff were feuding. They hated each other. Yeah. They hated each other. And what happened was once Wilt was hurt and came out, it gave Van Bredekoff the leverage and opportunity and time to keep him on the bench and basically say, we're not going to bring you back in. We'll win this game without you. So it was Van Bredekoff trying to use the opportunity to leverage his ego to say, we got it done without Wilt. It's because of me, the coach. And, you know, ultimately we saw they lost. So that didn't work, and Van Bredekoff got fired, and then, you know, Will was sort of the blame because he didn't come back in, you know, by way of Russell. So, you know, whether you buy that or you feel that's propaganda, that is the story that was told to us by those who were present and participated in that scenario to understand, you know, Wilk's position in that regard. Uh, You know, ultimately, man, what the consensus is for us at the end of the day when everything comes down is – there's a scenario where in four game sevens with Russell, Wilt lost collectively by nine points. Collectively, not one game. So what that says is this is about luck. It's about timing. It's about health. It's about attrition. It's about teammates. It's about ownership and, and, and team structure and organization. It's not just about one man's you know, willingness to go the extra mile or desire to win. There's so many other variables 
you know, uh, Fat Sanders hitting a crazy jump shot, Don Nelson with the crazy bounce that went 40 feet high in the air and lands in. These are things that sway the game. We even talk about, which you probably saw in one of the episodes, where Bill Russell makes a turnover. In a yeah, it throws the ball the against the guard wire. Yeah, game seven. Exactly. The ball the- yeah. But then Havlicek steals the ball, and Russell is deemed to be a winner, you know, because Havlicek throws the ball when he wasn't even involved in the play. Now, now I could argue. I'm glad you brought that one up, Rob. Now, I could argue because Wilt was such a bad free throw shooter, they couldn't go to him for the game-winning shot. And that's why Havlicek had a chance to steal the ball. Now, could I argue that or no? No, you could. You could. That, that, that's a fair critique and can't dispute that because his foul shooting is definitely the one pariah of his game. But, you know, when you watch that play, if, you, if the footage is rolled out a little more, the, the coach's play design is terrible. There's no movement. There's no screen setting. Uh, it's pretty much a telegraph pass to Hal Greer which is why Havlicek stole the ball so easy because there was nothing to figure out. And so, yes, Wilt may not have delivered from the free throw line, but this is what I mean by it's, it's bigger than Wilt with respect to coaching because it's like, can we come up with a better design play? I agree with that. I agree. Players, That's you know what point. I mean? I do. Yeah. Uh, and, and, I, and I will help Rob on this because we used to have Heinsohn on here all the time before he passed away, Rob. And Heinsohn always used to talk about that hook shot in 62 that was called a goaltend on Wilt in Game 7 oh, when, when McGuire yeah. was the head coach of the Sixers, uh, of the Warriors. And Heinsohn always said that was goaltending. You have that play in the, in, in the show. That mm-hmm. is not goaltending. That's an awful Definitely call. not. <laughs> yeah. This is that, that is an off. It was 105-102 for folks with about a minute left. And they gave the Celtics a basket, which they never should have scored. And the Sixers came back anyway, or the Warriors. They came back anyway. And if Sam Jones doesn't make a shot, at the end, Philly Way won that seventh game. That was the year that Wood averaged 50. He averaged 37 in the series. But that was a horrendous call on the goaltend. And this documentary is so good, Rob's got that in the show. So that tells you, mm-hmm. if you're a basketball fan, I got that right, right, Rob? If you're a basketball you fan, you there's it. enough in there for you to like. No, no question about it. Yeah. Correct? Go ahead. I, I did want to comment on the Willis Reed as well, because we do get into that um, in, in, in the coming episode. You'll see as well, too. And, you know, our sort of perspective there that we found interesting that is not acknowledged from Wilt's point of view is Wilt had destroyed his knee and was out for – most of the entire season. So yeah, this, he this missed 48 a, games. He missed 48 missed games. 48. Now, for most people, they would have been out for an entire season, you know, but he came back and he did the whole, you know, repair his knee, uh, his knee on the beach to be back in time to play that playoff game. And so he was risking his career, you know, and his livelihood by going out there, whereas I'm not to, to minimize Willis Reed's injury, Obviously, it was a big deal, and he fought through. But that was something that happened in real time from one game to the next. It wasn't season-ending, you know, potentially career-ending. And what, the bigger conversation we try to have there is about narratives and how they are determined based on who wins. So because the Knicks won, Willis Reed is a legend because he came out and made, you know, a couple of buckets and then didn't play the rest of the time, didn't score anymore, but he gave his team that emotional push. Now, if Wilk's team would have won, we would have been talking about how this guy Fair. came back. That's a good after point. four months, you know, with a third knee, and he's a superhero, you know? 
And remember that year, folks, Wilt missed a good part of the year, and he came back, and they were down 3-1 to Phoenix. And Wilt helped them beat Connie Hawkins and the Suns in seven games. People forget about that, too. It's the same season in which they lost the Knicks. Excellent job there. Very good there, Rob. Good answers there. All right, let's do something now off the court. Um, Let's do the 20,000 women thing. At the end of the day, do you think he was proud of that comment or upset that he made that comment? Oh, definitely upset that he made it. And if he could do it all over again, he wouldn't have said it. Uh, talk, I, I think the the loser narrative on the court and this sort of 20,000 womanizing, you know, off the court uh, uh, sort of persona are the two things that probably haunted him the most that he wished he could have changed. Uh, as you have or will see in the series, every person who was close to him in his life you know, friend, sister, um, anyone he was dating, they all told him, bad idea, don't do it. You will never be able to live this down. It will make you infamous. And it wasn't even actually his original idea. It was the editor who decided they needed to do something to try and hype the sale of his book. And he proposed the idea and Wilt agreed. And I, I think it's something that he regretted to the day he died because Unfortunately, as we speak now, we're still talking about it. And it's, you know, the ginormous man and this cast the shadow to eclipse, you know, him even as big as he was with all the other things that he did. And for me, you know, the part that was most heartbreaking was, and hopefully this tracks for you in the first two episodes through the third, but throughout his life, he was constantly trying to prove to people that he was a human being and he didn't want to be objectified by his physicality, his size, his speed, his strength, et cetera. So he was always trying to beat people in intellectual games. He was always trying to show off how cultured and sophisticated he was. He knew the finest wine. He knew the best fashion. He knew that the, the greatest, you know, tasting food. He had to fancy his cars because he always wanted to show the people like, don't just judge me as this ginormous, big, you know, athletic guy. I am an intellectual. I am sensitive. I'm sophisticated. And unfortunately, that statement of the 20,000 women is the thing that negated all of that and put him in a space where he was physically objectified, essentially for the, the rest of the history as people knew him, which is for me is just heartbreaking because he had did so much to create a different, you know, understanding for himself. And then he just compromised it all with that statement. Yeah, $100,000 a year. He's the first player to do that, raise the ante for everybody else, save basketball at the Sunday afternoon games against Russell, TV contract. That's all in here, too. You know what's interesting, too, Rob, and I'll say this. Watch the world get mad at me now, but I'll say this. You, You don't get into it. You don't get into it too much, but I was thinking about it. Wilt had a great relationship, for whatever the reason, with white folks. A lot of his girlfriends... He loved the owner of the Sixers who died in the, who died at the, uh, at a ball game, you know the Cutchers folks up there in the Catskills. There's a v- variety. Uh, he loved. He had a very very good his first coach in high school, an excellent excellent relationship. And for that era, that's a little. I I I'm assuming as an athlete, it's a little strange. And he had a wonderful relationship with uh, with, with the. Other side, his whole life. Explain that for a sec. Let me hear. Go ahead. Well, I think, like, fundamentally from, from the roots with respect to his adolescence, 
you know, growing up where he did and attending Overbrook High School, it was a diverse community. He was around and interacted with and friends with a lot of folks from the Jewish community. So I think there is a natural affinity and appreciation and love and openness to, you know, that community that is genuine and organic and real. And I think because of, as his life progressed into adulthood, because of his success and because of how he was such a unique individual, I think he just found himself in spaces where he was the only one, you know, particularly of, of color, uh, which by default, you know, put him in a position where he had to make relationships, business, friendships, otherwise, you know, particularly with white people. But I also think, you know, he was a very individualist type mentality as the, the film leads to, similar to like a Jack Johnson, similar to like a Michael Jordan with like, hey, Republicans buy shoes too, in the sense of, I am Wilt Chamberlain, and I supersede any boxes of social construct, you know, so don't limit me, limit me to this community or that community. I'm a man of the people. Um, and, you know, that can be controversial for some. It can rub people some, some people the wrong way, but I think that's how he saw himself. But I can tell you from firsthand testimony of talking to his sisters, talking to his nieces and nephews, talking to teammates and friends of that time, uh, as, as we would say in, in today's world, you know, Will is very much a part of the cookout, you know, like he was down with the black people. They loved him. He got it. There was no sort of like sellout or anything like that. I just think he was a very universally diverse and accepted man just because of his, you know, uh, exceptional nature with his talents and his gifts that put him in a lot of different spaces. My, he's a very good guy, and he loved women's sports, which is interesting. Explain that, Rob. Go ahead. Let me hear. Yeah, so his sister was an athlete as well, and she was very much interested in track and field. But as we talked about earlier, you know, just given the state of America at that time relative to women's sports in general, you know, it's pre-Title IX, but also, you know, for black women, there just wasn't a lot of opportunity. So once he got to the point of having success and status and, and resources monetarily, he was very inclined to want to help women's sports. So he started, you know, with volleyball naturally as he learned the importance of that sport when he repaired his knee. Um, and then he became a volleyball player himself. Then he had a team that he supported women. And then he got into track and field as a result of his sister. And he was particularly influential with helping the careers of Jackie Joyner, Jackie Joyner Kersey and Florence Griffin Joyner, who we all know went on to be, you know, world-class athletes and gold medal winners for the United States. So, you know, we play that concept and that idea and that story and that part of his contribution to women's sports right after you learn about the 20,000 women intentionally because we want to show to the audience that these two things exist within the same man. So how do you make sense of one with the other? And we're not telling you how you should feel or what you should think, but you just have to draw your own conclusions because he was a man that was a lot of women and was a womanizer as a result. But he also supported women's athletics, well, volleyball by way of tennis. He was great to his sisters and his friends who give firsthand account of their relationships with them. So it just makes them complex, which is why he's an interesting subject to make a movie about because there's so many layers to peel. And he's a ha he's a happy guy. Uh, this is not, you know, Russell at times maybe not as happy. Wilt's happy in his own shoes, correct? A thousand percent. The, 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 everyone talks about 
his energy, how likable he was, how he magnetizes the room when he walks in it. They always tell, it's like so many stories that we couldn't include about things that he did for fans, you know, whether it was signing autographs or taking pictures or spending time after games. He really loved people and people loved him. And unlike Russell, he deeply cared what people thought about him, maybe to his detriment, you know. Yeah, I think so. I think to his detriment. Yeah. I think that's 100% yeah. right. Yeah, and and there's a story in episode three that's really emotional. I won't give it away because I want you to be able to, you know, get it in, in its full splendor raw. But it just talks about his relationship with the fans and the community and how much he cares about people and to the extent that he would go to do something, you know, completely out of sheer gratitude and the goodness of his heart for someone else. That is so character revealing that I think it'll really answer that question that you just asked me, you know, by way of example. But he cared. He cared deeply. He wanted to be liked. That was important to him. And that's where he and Russell differ. And, and we actually grapple with that in the episode three that you'll see. And last thing with Russell, a complicated relationship. I know, um, you know, they made the NBA, the two of them. There's no other way around it. That rivalry, um, everybody rooting for the Celtics against Philly. Road had to play the, the heavy, which I'm sure drove him crazy. But that, that made the NBA. And I know Russell always blamed Wilt for walking out on him in game seven in that series, uh, thinking that Wilt sort of let him down. How could you do that to me in my last game? And, every, and I, I know that bothered Wilt for a while. But at the end of the day, you know, you show some scenes in the, in, earlier in the episodes, the two of them really appreciated what each did for each other, correct? Yes. They, after that championship game where he still, uh, you know, Wilt basically copped out and quit and publicly made the statement about that, Russell, to the media, you know, this is what I mean by Wilt cared what people thought, especially people who know him and were friends. He was devastated by Russell's statement and, you know, refused to speak to him and they didn't communicate for 20 years. Wow, and 20 years. Oh, my God. 20 wow. years, yeah. And it's it's our understanding that they reconnected by way of a Shaquille O'Neal Reebok commercial where the concept was Shaq was being admitted into the big man's club. And he had to get the uh, stamp of approval from Wilt, Kareem, Walton, um, obviously Wilt, and then Russell. And so at the commercial, Wilt was the person who basically broke the ice with Russell and got the conversation started. And then Russell ultimately apologized personally and publicly. Uh, and then they were friends thereafter, you know, until Will's demise. But yeah, it was, it was, it was rocky there and turbulent for a while. And him and Kareem didn't love each other either, right? They did not. We tried our best to get Russell and Kareem in the film. Russell was, you know, health-wise wasn't able to do it. And Kareem, to the point you made earlier, said he's working on his own project. So perhaps there is another one coming from him. We couldn't get him in the chair. But, yeah, you know, Will uh, was, was older than Kareem. Kareem was sort of a, a, a like a little brother, mentee type to, to Will. You know, they, they met at the Rucker. Will would show him around town, give him clothes because they were, you know, similar size and Will had everything custom-made. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Kareem was, was fascinated with Wilt's life, you know, as a young guy and seeing all that he was done. And then when they got into the league, you know, Wilt was on his way out and Kareem was coming in and starting to dominate. And he was becoming the next new Goliath, if you will. And we deal with this in, in episode three. So you'll get some of it as well. 
Um, and then they became a little, you know, bumpy with each other because ultimately, and this is, again, Will caring so deeply, he got really petty because he didn't want Kareem to break his scoring record. So he started talking bad about Kareem, extending his career too long and playing beyond what he should have just to break, uh, break Will's record. And Kareem would talk bad about Will and white women. And, you know, his quitting and the loser narrative, all things that we've been talking about in this interview in the film. And they publicly, you know, were at each other's throat for a while. And I'm not honestly sure if that was resolved by the time uh, Will passed away, unfortunately, which is why we were trying to get Kareem in the cheer. So I wish we could have went deeper into that one in the film, because that is another interesting relationship that has a lot of dynamic layers to it. But we really needed Kareem to help. You, know, you had to have him. Yeah, and, and Kareem, yeah. and Kareem talked to uh, talked about Walton. So uh, he did not do Wilt. Interesting. Robbie did a great job. I really enjoyed it. Excellent job with the documentary. I think if the fans watch it, they'll learn something. The footage is great. His career is interesting, and of course, you did a wonderful job here too. Thanks very much. Appreciate a couple minutes today. Absolutely. Thank you, and uh, enjoy episode three. Want more Chris Russo? Listen to Mad Dog Unleashed weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM Channel 82. Mad Dog's Daily Bite is part of the Sirius XM Sports Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts.